0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's midwinter, June 1901. Winter in the southern hemisphere and in the high felt or high plains of South Africa means bitterly cold nights where the temperature can dip well below freezing. As I write this, the temperature outside has dipped to 4 degrees centigrade in Johannesburg or 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, it's nothing like Siberia or Canada, but this is Africa, and these kinds of temperatures can catch the uninformed off-guard. It gets much colder in other parts of the country. In the Cape province, the town of Sutherland is the coldest in the country. With midwinter lows, that can drop to minus 20 centigrade or minus 4 Fahrenheit and where 3 feet of snow can fall. The British army was not ready for these extremes, as the German army was not ready for the Russian winter of 1941-42, while South Africa's High Plains winter is nothing like Russia's. The point is, the military underestimated the weather. The British were conducting what were known as drives, with columns of thousands of troops riding or marching across the felt, rounding up small groups of Boers who were trying to continue the guerrilla war. While nights and early mornings can be bitterly cold, during the day temperatures rise to above 20 degrees centigrade or 68 Fahrenheit and it becomes extremely dry, not quite the Atacama in Chile but dry enough. Most of South Africa is a summer rainfall region except for the Western Cape which has a Mediterranean climate very similar to the San Francisco area of California. So winter has come to the Anglo-Boer War, and for many British soldiers it's their second on the felt. The Boers, meanwhile, have slowed their actions with a lack of water for their horses and feed that has disappeared from the felt. General Delaray, for example, has sent most of his men home and told them to wait out the winter for a renewal of guerrilla warfare in spring. Delaray himself heads off to join General Christian de Vette, who is still fighting along with die-hard followers of around 100 burghers who had made it their mission to cause as much trouble as possible for the British in the Orange Free State. However, between 5th of June and 20th June 1901, freezing weather has made the mission painful and deadly. They were not alone. As I'll explain, a blizzard that was about to sweep across the high felt would lead to deaths on all sides, not least the civilians cooped up in the concentration camps. That's the contradiction that is South Africa. The dry winters are interspersed with icy cold fronts that are driven across the subcontinent all the way from the Antarctic, bringing frozen moisture that leaves high ground covered in snow. Things were beginning to move in British politics too, with the opposition leader Campbell Bannerman recognizing the bad propaganda about women and children dying in the camps as an opportunity for his party to seize the high ground in the ongoing debate about the Anglo-Boer War. Remember how Emily Hobhouse had arrived in England in May and immediately set to work lobbying anyone who'd listen on behalf of the Boer women and children who'd been forcibly removed from their farms and incarcerated in the camps which had atrocious hygiene. Typhoid was rampant, along with dysentery and other diseases. Black workers who'd been captured with the Boers and been forced into nearby camps were dying in even larger numbers. On June 17, 1901, a motion in the British House of Commons condemning the British Army's incarceration of Boer civilians in the concentration camps in South Africa failed to pass by a margin of 154 votes to 253. The resolution had been made by MP and future Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Almost 50 of Lloyd George's fellow Labour Party members abstained from the vote. As you will hear in this podcast, as the MPs gathered, the civilian death toll accelerated. Back in the Free State, General Wet was on the move again with a much reduced force of 70 men and with President Steyn who he was guarding. General Delaray had also just joined him, so this little group actually was quite a formidable unit. The commander arrived in a place called Liebenbergsville on the 5th of June, when they were informed that a lager of women had been captured by the British. A lager is a large group of ox wagons, usually drawn up in a circle, to enable defence as it was in the American frontier experience. What really made De Witt viciously angry about the report was that the much-hated National Scouts, led by Piet de were involved. Piet de was Christian's brother, whom he'd sworn to shoot on sight after he switched allegiance to the British. The National Scouts were Boer turncoats, led by de and Christian made it known that all would be executed if they were ever caught. Perhaps this violent hatred clouded de thinking, for what he did next was to commit a blunder. And Christian hardly ever made mistakes. President Stain and his bodyguard remained behind, while General Dalaray, Commandant Darville, and General Davet, as well as fifty men, hurried off to try and save the women. Had he thought about it, he was actually drawing the British directly to the women merely by being in the area, as ten thousand troops were looking for this tiny force of fewer than a hundred. Galloping across the felt, they quickly located the lager of women and their English minders they had made for a nearby hill where there was a black village of fewer than half a dozen huts. We first caught sight of the English when we were at the distance of four miles from them. They were then busy drawing up the wagons of the women in rows of ten or twelve. The oxen belonging to the first row stood close against the kraal as we saw later on, those of the second row behind them and so on. As a soldier, this was exactly how we drew up our vehicles decades later in a conventional war, mainly due to ease the dispersion should we be attacked by aircraft. The English, to their credit, had ordered the women behind them and out of sight as they were fully aware of the Boer commander, which was about to launch an attack. But the women were now also in danger when the burgers opened fire. The rounds could miss the English in the wagons. They were exposed to a danger of being hit behind by us if we shot a little too high. It was, they said, the most terrible day they'd ever spent, he wrote in his book. As the galloping commander came into range, the English opened fire, but DeVet and his men were riding like the possessed and galloping over the ground that he said was as smooth as a table. But it also had no cover, so they could not halt and hide behind rocks. Between the wagons and the boers was a small hill and the commander sought shelter there, jumping from their horses. The boers then began sprinting around the small hill, up the larger kopje towards the wagons and were within 40 paces of the English in the line when their foe opened fire. As soon as our heads appeared over the brow of the hill, they fired on us. Our reply was so sharp and severe that many of them were at once mowed down. The rest jumped up and retreated behind the last row of wagons, several of them, however, being killed during their flight. The English had already fortified the village in preparation for the expected Boer assault. Removing rocks from the walls of the huts to make loopholes for their rifles, they retreated from their wagons into this final defensive position. It was not a great position for the Boers to attack. If a burgher wanted to shoot, he had to expose his whole body, while the English lay ready behind their loopholes to fire on us. Thus, eleven men under his command were shot dead in rapid succession. Seven others lay wounded and calling out for help. This was not what he had expected, but it was one of the few examples of the general being involved in a direct assault of this type, and it was going badly. He had broken his golden rule of fighting smart, never engaging directly over open ground, always seizing the high ground before an assault, he had broken all of his rules and would now pay for the error. The Boers kept the rate of fire up. The women had moved around the British and began to move the wagons themselves. This was a moment in English military history. Women in dresses and bonnets, some carrying children, being fired on as they dragged oxen into place, whipped them into action, jolting down the slope and out of harm's way in their wagons. No sooner had the English taken the refuge in the kraal. And the women fled with the wagons and it is astonishing to relate that only one little boy of 13 was killed and a woman and a girl slightly wounded but it must be said that it's clear that the english were trying to avoid shooting the women he quickly issued orders to the women to drive their wagons as far away as possible leave in flight in the end this firefight left over 80 english soldiers dead or wounded and the fight lasted from 11 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. It was at that point that a reinforcement of cavalry charged into sight, and what a sight it was. Almost a thousand men strong, it appeared on the plain, and they were also dragging artillery with them. The force de had been fighting was around 200 strong, and he had to accept they must withdraw, although he really wanted to destroy the unit that had turncoat boers amongst them particularly, if possible, his traitorous brother. We had to give way, he says glumly. Now he ran back to the little hill that had protected him and his men, but what he saw behind was a shock. The women had left their wagons and were now standing there instead of fleeing. They had forgotten what I told them, namely that they were to get their way as quickly as possible, thunders Devet in his memoir. He had known from the start that the British were thick on the felt and reinforcements were on their way and the only hope for the women to escape was to move as fast as possible in the opposite direction. By now the cavalry had arrived at the village and in fury the English uncoupled their artillery pieces and turned these on the women. He screamed at them to leave but it was too late. The general had to make a choice. Stand and fight or run. He decided on the latter after all, he thought, President Stain's life depended on his commander's protection. The English now directed their fire upon the women's lager to compel it to come to a standstill. Whether any of the women or children were killed or wounded, I was unable to ascertain, but it was horrible to see the bombs bursting over their heads. Thus, the women fell into the hands of the enemy. The bet's men drove over 1,000 head of cattle ahead of them while the English fired on the commander once they'd secured the lager. Eventually, the Boers were out of range. De Witt was shaken, though, and downhearted that his attempt at saving the women had ended so tragically. That night was colder than any other in the winter so far. De Witt had missed the President, who'd already left Liebenberg's flay, in fear the British would capture him. Worse still, they'd taken all the blankets, and the general and his surviving commander had to continue riding or die of exposure. It was impossible to sleep without any covering on such a night as that, and so we were obliged to march on. Without fire or food, in an icy wind on a dark night, they followed the trail of the President until they came across his camp at midnight. We will leave the General and his dark thoughts that night and focus on a blizzard that swept across the felt through the middle of June 1901. It whipped through the concentration camps, killing many of those within, but the British too were not spared. In the Balmoral district of the Transvaal, this blizzard overtook a young Lieutenant W. St. Clair McLaren of the 1st Argyle and the Sutherland Highlanders, along with his men. They, like the vet, were without shelter, the commissariat wagons being some way ahead, and they crept under a tarpaulin for protection from the fierce and bitterly cold blast. During that awful night, McLaren took off his overcoat to cover up the body of his major, who was dying of exposure. When the morning came, McLaren too was found dead, with five of his men. While around them, stiffly frozen, lay the bodies of 600 mules. Don't you find the story particularly sad? McLaren leaves the highlands of Scotland to travel to Africa only to freeze to death in a blizzard on the high plains of South Africa right at the point at which the highlands actually drop away to the balmy lowlands where temperatures never drop to zero. Balmoral was also an important point on the Pretoria to Delagoa Bay railway line in Portuguese East Africa with its tropical seas merely a day's journey away. Yet Balmoral also hosts one of South Africa's worst concentration camps, where a museum is being built today, where women and children that same night were freezing too. Balmoral may be the Queen of England's royal estate in Aberdeenshire in Scotland, but here in South Africa, it's a tiny hamlet with terrible memories. A few hundred kilometres due west of Balmoral in the Transvaal lies Arini, which is outside the capital Pretoria. Here, the cold had seeped into the concentration camp where Johanna van Varmeloor was working as a nurse. So, as you know, she was keeping three diaries, one about her love life, one secret diary as a Boer spy, and her open diary. It was on the night of June 16, after spending two weeks nursing sick women and children, that the first signs of mental anguish of burying the dead began to take hold. She was sitting in her tent, having tried to save a boy of three who was dying of measles and bronchitis. Danny Cameron appears to have been one of those kids who everyone knows and knows everyone. But on this night, he was breathing his last. And Johanna could not take it any longer, and ran from the sight of Danny's family, kneeling at his bedside, praying and weeping. Poor souls, poor souls, she writes. How they adore the little fellow with his sweet face and winsome manners, And what a little wreck he is. Johannes staggers to a nearby tent where another little girl is dying. Mrs. Volmarans' little girl, writes the emotional nurse. It's been nearly three weeks of hell for the Volmarans family as their five-year-old daughter slowly slips away, typhoid and pneumonia taking her life. The mothers of these camps are left shocked and bewildered, but still their men would fight. And stories of these camps with their agonies leave a political scar on the minds of South Africans, where still today visceral emotions well up when the descendants recall these moments. So Johanna van Barmele sat in her tent on June 16, 1901, writing her diary feverishly, as if her very actions would somehow cleanse her mind of her own memories. She was only 25. I heard the sounds of many footsteps passing, she writes. I went out to see what it was, and this was the sight that met my eyes. A large coffin on a bier, carried by six men, another large coffin, with the tiniest one I've ever seen beside it a mother and child, another middle sized one, and lastly a child's coffin, five in all, and then came a crowd of people, some carrying spades. The procession slowly made its way in silence past her tent. They were happening daily, bludgeoning the small medical teams and the priests with their consistency. A chaplain of the Bethuli concentration camp also kept a diary, parts of which are published in Emmanuel Lee's book called To the Bitter End. The chaplain had collapsed mentally and physically after days and nights broken by shrill whistles calling for another corpse to be taken to the mortuary tent. Very trying afternoon among the dying, he writes. One woman just gave her last when I entered to pray for her. A funeral to me is the most fatiguing duty, more so when one has to give an address at graves and there is no time for preparation except on the march to the burying ground. I am forced to rely on impromptu grace. He cannot continue. Menhir, kom hier? the people shout, Sir, please come here. Meneer, toch Sir, please go there. Always face to face with helpless, impotent despairing. Always face to face with decay, change, death. Always the same close little tent. It's also important historically as the reality of what was happening, which had been censored by the British government, was being revealed in a series of increasingly hostile reports by English journalists about what was going on in these camps. Remember Lord Kitchener, who really perfected the idea, was a military hero. He'd saved an entire army in the Sudan, which had been holed up in Khartoum, and epitomized the very spirit of the fighting empire. His face, later, would show up on the First World War propaganda posters with the famous line, Your country needs you, and his bristling moustache, finger-pointed at the reader. Symbolism and history are twin bedfellows. Lord Kitchener was courageous, if careless, about human lives. He never expected his men to do what he wouldn't. He was a military man of the 19th century and could not be blamed exclusively for the camp deaths. When his ship went down in 1916, for example, he drowned during the First World War after his ship was torpedoed by the Germans. He had been dressed in full military regalia and refused to climb aboard one of the lifeboats, preferring instead to stand aside while others saved themselves. But during the Boer War, he had become frustrated. A war that the British had thought would take weeks had now killed more men than had died in the Crimea. They had been repeatedly mauled by what they regarded as savages, and the narrative at the time was to portray the Boers as almost subhuman. Therefore, their treatment was befitting a nation of dishonorable soldiers who refused to surrender after they should have. But when it became clear how bad the camps were by June 1901, he must be condemned by all reasonable people for turning his back on the initial reports and preferring to spin his way out of the unspinnable. At first he claimed he did not know, and then when he did know, he was trapped in his own organisational chaos. And speaking of chaos, there was a certain amount of that commodity in offering on the evening of June 12, 1901, in the eastern Transvaal, Commandant Ben Follion and his lieutenant Muller had been harassing the British constantly for weeks. It was then that Kitchener's poor logistic planning came back to bite in a military way. Muller launched a night attack on 350 Victorians from Australia on the Middleburg-Urmelo Road after his scouts reported poor picketing by the Aussies. Kitchener knew of the weakness in the unit, but had believed the commanding officer would make all the difference. The problem was the commanding officer wasn't there that night. A dozen Australians were killed, the rest taken prisoner, while Muller looted the convoy, seizing ammunition, food, clothing and other material. Most of the Victorian regiment were made up of colonial irregulars, not full-time soldiers. Furthermore, they had ignored their English commander, General Beetson, friction building up as time went on. They marched badly and their discipline was terrible. Instead of mixing them with other units, Kitchener allowed them to march alone. Beetson was not with the Victorians. They had used his absence to slip into laziness. He hurried to where the wagons had been looted in a rage, and even more so when he heard that the Boers had released all their prisoners. There, on the side of the road, he mustered the Victorian regiment, ordered them to fall in. Then he proceeded to insult them, saying they were a lot of wasters and white livered curs, upon which the Australian officers hauled out their notebooks and began writing these insults down. Seeing them, Beetson continued, You can add dogs too, and you're all alike, he yelled, all semblance of military decorum vanishing in a hail of sputum. Then he arrested the three men officers and had them sentenced to death. Kitchener heard about it and commuted the sentence to three years' hard labour. The Australian government heard about it and complained to the British government and a complete pardon was granted. Of course, word of Muller's success reached Delaray and Devette, convincing them that the British were still weak enough to beat. But on the other side of the world, in London, Emily Hobhouse's report into the concentration camps would land on the desks of editors on the 18th of June, 1901, and some would change their minds about how righteous the war had been against the Boers. We'll cover the political fallout in the next podcast. So please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com if you can. And also you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O breng mij terug naar jou Transvaal, daar waarmee Sarajevo...